G'day guys, welcome to the sixth episode of the JPS podcast and we are here with Nick Cheadle, owner and director of Nick Cheadle Fitness. Welcome Nick. Thank you mate, thank you very much for having me on. And for those of you who don't know who Nick is, you obviously haven't been on Instagram and should <laughs> go check him out, cheeky plug. Uh, Nick is the owner and director of Nick Cheadle Fitness and is just recently... Uh, being crowned the bodybuilding.com spokesmodel of the year for 2017. So very well done, Nick, and congratulations on that. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. And he's an optimum nutrition athlete, coach, and a flexible dieting master. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess that's a calm way of putting it. Thank you, man. Not a problem. And welcome to the show, man. Um, Chris? And today I'd like to talk to you about a number of things related to training, nutrition, and lifestyle but the first thing I wanted to know Nick is everybody has that story about why they started in the gym and I'd love to hear why you started cool man um so I guess I've been a personal trainer now for about nine years in fact uh later this month I'll begin my 10th year as a personal trainer so It's been a while, yeah. Uh, I originally got into the gig because I was looking for a way to earn reasonable money per hour while studying at uni. Uh, I'd enrolled in a commerce degree at the time and wasn't too long before that sort of took a back seat and uh, priorities started to change. Um, I guess uh, the constant pursuit of improving my physique and learning more and more about the body really began when uh, I, uh, I made a bet with a mate. Um, we wanted to see who could get onto the cover of a magazine first, and uh, it just so happened that there was a uh, a small A and B competition not too uh, not too far away, um, and the first prize just happened to be a magazine cover. So I thought, what better way to kick off this bet than uh, maybe try and do it within a matter of weeks? And uh, sort of uh, got me prepping for my first comp, obviously, and then uh, I guess everything just sort of snowballed from there. Um, if uh, we sort of delve a little bit deeper, I guess uh, I could probably say that um, earlier on growing up, I, I didn't have a whole lot of confidence, particularly with uh, talking to girls and um, being in a social sphere. Um, so I guess for me... You went to boarding school, correct? I did go to boarding school, yeah. It was an all-boys boarding school, obviously. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I used to get a bit anxious about, um, you know, the odd situation where, uh, you know, females might be involved. And certainly when I first started going to parties, I didn't really know how to act. So I guess um, when it comes down to it, there was a little bit of anxiety involved there and, and ultimately my perception was that the guys that tended to look pretty good with their shirts off tended to be a little bit more confident than most. So I guess for me, uh, something that could have been somewhat negative uh, or considered to be somewhat negative has ended up turning into a, a bit more of a positive down the track. But, um, you know, I think... Uh, I think that's certainly the most relatable part of the journey. I, you know, I tend not to share that part of it too often because um, it, it's it's still a little bit raw, I guess. But I think um, it's probably the most relatable aspect to it. Uh, essentially, I uh, I didn't really like what I looked back, uh, what was looking back at me in the mirror. Um, I wasn't overly confident on the outside or or within a group of people. And for me, uh, looking better was the first step to feeling and, and being more confident in that uh, in that environment. So I guess, uh, as I said, that first competition ended up uh, being the basis of the snowball that yeah. then continued to grow. It um, is Nick Cheadle Fitness. Yeah, so I guess you know I did uh, I did a couple of comps uh, in probably the most unsustainable manner possible, um, and from there it was sort of like, well, I I want to look like this for a long period of time. How can I go about making sure yeah. that the process of doing so is actually a bit easier than? pretty much avoiding all my favorite foods and telling my friends and family that I couldn't eat out with them and had to avoid all forms of social situations, alcohol, and basically become a hermit yeah. just in order to look the way that I wanted. Um, yeah. You know, for me, it was all about how can I do this without mm. essentially my life having to suck. Yeah. And wow, I never knew that about you, Nick, and it's awesome to hear that you, you know, you can be so open and honest about, you know, your reason why you started. And following on from what you said about your first competition, do you think that people, whether they're bodybuilders or just everyday, you know, fitness enthusiasts, do you think that they need to go through a period of restriction 
and clean eating to realize how much it sucks and how much they would be better off with a flexible diet? Or do you think that people can just go straight to a flexible diet without having going through that course of learning, so to speak? Uh, well, mate, I certainly hope that isn't the case because if so, then everything that I do is in vain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I guess you could look at it two ways. I've either been fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to have been through that. Um, the only benefit being that now I have the hindsight to see that there is a better way. Now, the reason I put out so much content on social media is because I want to try and help people avoid what I consider to be a fairly heinous situation. You know, it's just unnecessary suffering. Um, You know, as anyone that has dieted in the past knows, it doesn't matter how flexible it becomes or how flexible your approach is, dieting still sucks. Eating less than you need, less calories than you actually burn during the week for a consistent period of time is challenging. It's hard. No one really enjoys not having enough energy to do their day-to-day tasks. Um, there's just simply no need to add to that challenge by you know, avoiding foods you love and giving yourself zero flexibility as far as your food choices and your lifestyle are concerned. So I don't think people need to go through a period of restrictive dieting. Um, however, I do tend to find that people that do have a greater appreciation for the flexible nature of you yes. know, fit, fitting different foods into their macros and and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I would hope that yeah. you know, more and more people now aren't having to do that as a consequence of the, the information that does tend to be out there. I think it's been a really good thing over the last couple of years. Um, you know, I remember when I first started talking about flexible dieting, a lot of people were like consistently tagging me in these ridiculous, if it fits your macros versus clean eating yeah. on Facebook, which, you know, I mean, there's nothing productive that's ever going to come out of that, whereas now I simply just get tagged in, the, in people's, you know, um, food porn creations that are just you know, absolutely ridiculous and, yeah. and people, like, you know, look what I managed to fit into my macro set. And, uh, you know, so I think that's a good sign. I think, I think um, the idea about flexible dieting is spreading, which is only, it's only a good thing. It's a good thing. It's definitely, it's a little bit off topic, but what's the best food porn that you've been tagged in? Um, actually, I posted a YouTube video not too long ago, uh, last week, I think. I, uh, I caught up with, uh, yeah, well, okay, so the, the kid that ate that, the kid that I caught up with for that burger, I mean, if you haven't seen his page, you need to go and check out his Instagram page yeah, because, yeah. um, the food porn that he creates is ridiculous. I think the best one that he's done was a Nutella pizza and he covered it. The toppings were, um, Reese's peanut butter cups. Oh, wow. That's a nice one. That's very Mate. flexible. Yeah, I mean, you need a few calories to be that flexible, but yeah, um, if you can do it every so often, then yeah, yeah I'll see. And one of the questions that I had for you, Nick, is a lot of people, you know, myself included, I know that I went through the, you know, very restrictive clean eating phase in my first bodybuilding comp, and obviously you went through the same experience. How did you first stumble across the scientific approach? Who introduced that to you, or where did you find it? How did you find it? Can you share some insight into that? Yeah, for sure, man. So um, this may sound like really cliche, but I used to spend a lot of time on the bodybuilding.com forums. Um, and uh, I started, I guess I just started doing a lot of research. The one guy in particular that first um, mentioned the concept of the Fitzy macros for me, <clears throat> excuse me, was Joseph Rakic. I'm yeah. not sure if you're right. Yeah, if I'm you know Joseph. He's a... Uh, from he's New Zealand. Pretty- yeah, so he's probably the largest online personal trainer in the world. I've been fortunate enough to meet and hang out with him a few times. He's a great dude. But um, I remember reading his uh, interview on Simply Shredded. Um, you know, I used to I used to love that website. I used to just sit at home and, yeah. and suffer while I ate my fish and broccoli, <laughs> reading through interviews about all these guys. I used to love the way they looked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Joseph Rackage, I remember he posted his diet in that interview and his diet at the time, he was eating like six mini pizzas a day. And I was like, what the hell? How the hell does and this that guy... Is- that will- Hello, Nick. You there, mate? Yeah. Sorry, no, just froze. 
No, that's okay. Um, so we'll kick off from Joseph Rakic with his uh, Maccas and his pizzas. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, Joseph Rakic was the guy that first introduced me to flexible dieting. I read one of his interviews on Simply Shredded, and in that interview, he listed his daily diet. And at the time, he was eating like six mini pizzas a day that he created himself. And at the time, my favorite food was pizza. Uh, so my first question was, how hell does he eat yeah. that yeah. six times over through the day and look the way he did? Uh, at the time, he was very lean. And uh, it obviously sparked the curiosity in me and uh, did a little bit more reading, uh, which led me to a number of other threads on bodybuilding.com uh, on the forum section where – you know, all these people were discussing uh, the concept of flexible dieting, what if it fits your macros, and you know how to go about calculating your macros, how to go about yeah. calculating yeah. how many calories you needed, um, and and setting up your own diet that way. Um, and I guess over time, um, I actually remember the, the day I started doing it, uh, the very day after my second competition, because again. Um, I prepped like an absolute bro for that second competition. I think it was about sort of six to eight weeks out from that competition. I realized um, that the approach I was taking was not the best one. Yeah. I was working with a coach at the time. Uh, and it's, a, it's not a great feeling, um, you know, becoming aware of the uh, the approach that you're taking being less than optimal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd sort of chosen to put my faith in a coach, and, and about six weeks out, I was like, I know yeah, this is right. And I've sort of committed to this process, so I need to see this out, knowing that it's not the best thing. Um, so yeah, the day after my comp, I just got straight into it. I started off by counting calories, and um, I think uh, Lane Norton ended up coming out to uh, Sydney not too long after that, giving a seminar which I attended, and he uh, you know began to stress the importance of hitting macros rather than just uh, staying within calorie limits and. From there, it sort of snowballed from there, and, and, and obviously, I gained a better insight into how Joseph was able to eat you know, yeah. six million pizzas a day and still maintain his body composition. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess over time, I was able to apply those principles and become better and better at it. Yeah, that's, a, that's an incredible story because Joseph was actually one of the individuals that I first stumbled upon who was tracking calories and macros. And then I transitioned to reading Lyle, Allen. Lane, all those uh, dudes who have you know pioneered the flexible dieting movement, and now yourself along with them. How does it feel, Nick, that to be as big as your, I guess, idol from the onset? Uh, well, man, that's a very kind thing to say. I guess I'm really just repackaging their message. Um, yeah. You know, I think social, you know, social media is uh, it, it's it's a funny thing. It's a it's a it's a very cool tool and, you know, a very, you know, like I say, it's a funny thing, man. Yeah. You know, social media is so, uh, I don't know how to describe it to be honest. I, I think it, I, I've been fortunate in that, you know, obviously, uh, the things that I post on social media have allowed me to gain such traction. Uh, and I think it's cool that I've been able to share what I consider to be a fairly important message. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, at the end of the day, the guys like Lane and Lyle and Alan, they're the ones that are, that are doing the research and, yeah. and putting it out there. Um, it just so happens that I've been able to um, to broadcast that message, um, you know, every bit as effectively as uh, as they've been able to. So, you know, whilst I may have been able to, to share that message with a few people, I think they're the ones that, that really need to be thanked because yeah. without them, we'd all still be suffering into our Tupperware. Yeah, for sure. But in saying that, I do think you have a very innate ability to make the science easily accessible and appealing. And I think that's something that not a lot of people uh, possess. That's a very powerful skill in itself. And I think that's attributed a lot of your success is your relatability and the way that you articulate yourself. And it's very impressive to see you do that. My question to you, Nick, is... How do you stay up to date with the current research? Because you you have been someone who has constantly and continually evolved in terms of your practices with the research. So, who do you look to, and what do you listen to when you know changing your views and opinions on training and diet? Uh, thank you, mate. That's 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 a nice thing to hear because obviously something I try and pride myself on. Uh, I. Th- you know, I think uh, when you take a step back, there's a lot of people in the fitness industry, and I think uh, for me, 
part of the process of trying to get myself out there was trying to figure out how can I bring a point of difference. And for me, obviously, there was the whole, well, there's all this science stuff and a lot of people that like to talk about this science-based stuff, but you know, there's probably way more people that, that understand that yeah, and yeah. Understand how to actually use it. 100%. So maybe I'm just going to try and bridge that gap. And, and I think you know, there's a lot of science out there that you know, people can debate for hours and hours upon or we could look at essentially what is typically covered in the abstract of a study uh, and, and think about how can we repackage that for more practical use. Because at the end of the day, people don't need to know about you know, the, uh, the idea of muscle protein synthesis and its impacts on how to build muscle. We just need to know that if we eat four to five meals a day that contain roughly 30 to 35 grams of protein or more, we're probably going to give ourselves every chance possible of building as much muscle mass as possible. Yeah. Um, as far as, you know, who do, I, um, who do I read stuff from, who do I start to date with, um, all the guys you just mentioned basically, Lyle McDonald, Alan Aragon, Lane Norton are big ones. Brad Schoenfield and uh, James Krieger, uh, as well as Brett Contreras, they all put out fantastic stuff. Um, but for the most part, I guess it comes down to research myself. If there's something in particular that I want to know about, um, then I will simply do the time to, to look into studies, to you know, do my Googling, to, to, to look into whatever it is you know, might be out there. Alan's got a fantastic uh, research review that he puts out, you know, the latest stuff. Um, as well as most of those guys, to be honest. Yeah. If, you, if you haven't checked out their website, obviously, um, not you, mate, but anyone listening that hasn't checked out any of their websites, yeah. there is um, you know, countless, countless articles, countless blog posts um, that will literally change the way you think about pretty much anything. Yeah, for uh, sure. I think Brett Contreras alone, his website has oh, it's phenomenal. hundreds of articles. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. Uh, and even if all of them don't have, you know, uh, articles or science to them there there's still a lot of there's there's a lot of stuff on there that you can learn from um, but you know as I said before it's all about how can we make things more manageable more you know um, more sustainable how can we make this whole process more enjoyable so if there's something in particular that I want to f figure out how I can do better then I'll, I'll essentially go out after that um, but for me I guess a lot of it as I said started from basic reading and forums and then Essentially, that uh, just sort of kickstart onto yeah. who else yeah. is putting out good information, and um, a lot of the time that stuff again stems back from the forums, and then you, you can sort of pick up the the bits and pieces you want from there. Uh, I found trial and error to be a really good way of doing things too. Yeah. You know, I, I'm obviously very pro DUP and D uh, and pro sort of strength training. Um, and to be honest, the, the real reason I did that was because I was able to put myself through it to begin with and see the impact that it had on my training. Um, I then applied that to my own clients' training programs and, and see the progress that they were able to make. And, you know, when you start to look into the research as well, it's like, well, no wonder this stuff works. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so for me, the biggest things that I tend to incorporate in my own training, my own nutrition, as well as that of my clients is what is – what is it that you know science tends to suggest works, and then what is it that has actually worked for me and my clients? And when you combine the two of them, you really can't go wrong. And that's what evidence-based practice is all about. And yeah. you've done a phenomenal job bridging that gap. And you and Beck did a really, really cool video the other day um, on, you know, a uh, couple goals. I watched mm -hmm. that. That was <laughs> that was pretty funny. Um, but the message was, at, although it was very entertaining and very uh, interesting, watching you guys talk about. Uh, your relationship. The message was pretty powerful, and we we discussed before how powerful social media is um, as a medium to you know have an impact on the broader community, and you know how we portray ourselves is very much a highlight reel, as you guys suggested in the video. How have you adjusted to your increase in popularity and you know social media fame? There's obviously a large set of expectations that get placed on you as a you know figure in the industry, and as the bodybuilding.com spokesman of you know 2017, like I'm sure you didn't predict when you started at the A and B comp that you would have this much pressure and expectation. How have you adjusted you know your mindset and your lifestyle to all of the changes that you've gone through? Because it has been very quick. It's been a quick process for you. Yeah. Uh... To be honest, I think I'm still learning. Uh, I think the most important thing you can do, particularly on social media, is be yourself. And I think 
through practicing that um, and being able to remember that consistently the reason you are where you are is because you've been yourself um, reminds you the importance of continuing to do so. Um, I think most people sort of vibe with the stuff that I put out because, you know, essentially that is me. Um, there's really no advantage in becoming somebody else mm. at the time because the reason that I am where I am today is because for the most part I've been myself, yeah. even though maybe yes. along the way I've forgotten that at times. And, um, you know, I'll be honest, having, um, you know, in excess of uh, a million people following you across social media platforms, that, that does, it, it can have the, uh, you know, impact of going to your head a little bit at times. But yeah. at the end of the day, I'm, I'm really no different to anybody else. And, you know, if you meet me in the street, I'm not going to, you know, be uh, anyone but me. Uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, while social media is a powerful tool, it's just me sharing the, uh, the experiences and the lessons that I've learned as a consequence of maybe having done it for a little bit longer than some of the people that follow me. It's not, yeah. it's not necessarily that I'm, I'm better or stronger than everybody else. It's just that I've uh, managed to share my experiences um, as they've happened and, and tried to be as relatable as possible in doing so. You know, I think what most people uh, tend to forget is that we all start somewhere and uh, it just so happens that you know anybody that maybe stumbles across my page now doesn't realize that there wasn't, you know, there was a time not too long ago uh, that I was just like them, trying to figure things out, trying to figure out why I wasn't getting stronger, bigger, leaner, why I couldn't lose weight, all those sorts of things. I've been through those struggles, so I guess for me, it's 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 all about making sure that I continue to be the person that I was when I first started to help those that are first starting now. That's awesome, man. That's a that's a brilliant response, and we know that you obviously convey yourself in a very realistic manner like you don't try to say hey you know you have to be perfect you have to look at me I train and I never miss a session I'm you know hardcore balls to the walls I track every single calorie macro macro you're very real but do you think that social media you know being so unrealistic in a sense makes people feel like failures for not being able to have abs and is it realistic for people to expect to look like you if they start tracking their calories and macros? Um, I think, yeah, I think look, social media gives a lot of unrealistic expectations and I think that's compounded as well by the fact that there are a lot of guys and girls out there that tend to preach um, nonsense, uh, to put it nicely. I think, I don't I, think it's I can, see, I can see you getting angry at this. This is something that really... It's, you, more, it? it's more frustration, yeah. I think there's a lot of people out there that, that certainly preach um, the wrong message. Uh, so I think the important – I mean, I guess that's why I've always tried to be so real. Mm. Uh, I think, um, you know, one of the uh, approaches that I took probably a year ago was the first time I started posting these sorts of photos um, was to try and be as relatable as possible to people. There is, as you say, a huge expectation that comes with social media. People see photos of you know their favorite athletes and their favorite social media stars or whatever you want to call them, and they think that these people look like this day in, day out, every second of the day, um, and it's just not practical. Like I know guys in the industry that when they aren't in shape, they'll post old photos of when they were in shape to give yeah. the impression that they're constantly in shape. That's crap. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, I don't. I'm not five percent body. I don't think I've ever been five percent body fat, but I, I'm certainly not that lean all the time. So, um, I think, uh, as I said, when I first started trying to do social media, it was all how can I provide a point of difference. Well, my ongoing point of difference is to try and be as real as possible, give people realistic expectations. Um, not only as a coach, but as an athlete. If you want to consider me an athlete too, I've never really thought of myself that way. But I, the last thing I'd ever want is for people to look at me and think, oh, that guy is, you know, super lean and he's super lean all the time and he also eats, you know, the ridiculous burgers and stuff that he posts up. Um, there is an opportunity to be realistic and there is an opportunity to be honest about what you do. Uh, and I think ultimately the people that are the most successful on social media are the ones that do exactly that. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think uh, my girlfriend, Beck is a fantastic example of that too. She talks about the way she thinks and the way she feels, even if that isn't um, necessarily in a positive light all the time. And as a yeah. consequence, her following is probably the most engaged following I've ever seen on social media. Yeah. Uh, 
people love, and I think I learned this um, the most when I first started to step away from being super, super lean for the majority of the time, is people love um, realism. Yeah. Um, they, they love extremes. Like they love it when people are, you know, super lean, super big, super strong because that's impressive. But at the same time, more often than not, people relate more to what is real because the extremes that most people consider they'll never get to, they'll never see, they'll never experience themselves. And whilst they might be able to appreciate it, they don't appreciate it in a way that it's going to impact, impact them directly. Yeah. Whereas if you can actually relate to somebody and say, hey, I know what you're feeling, I know what you're going through, I know how hard it is, but it is possible to push through that and get to the other side, and I think you're going to connect with a lot more people and ultimately be able to um, help and impact a lot more people as a consequence. I think the most uh, engagement I've ever gotten any, on any of my posts on social media are all the ones where I'm not looking super lean or I'm not looking pumped or I'm not looking jacked. You know, they're the ones that are like, this is what I look like day to day with no pump. Like, it's not as impressive as you guys think. Like, yeah, I can look okay in the gym, but like, don't think I look like that all, all the time because thinking that that is the goal is setting yourself up for failure. It's not going to, it's never going to be like that, you know, unless you're like pumping yourself so full of gear, you're probably going to die in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, that's um, something that I definitely appreciate is how realistic you are. And obviously, you've been somewhat of a pioneer of the flexible dieting, even though you weren't one of the, I guess, people to initially stumble upon it, you've helped disseminate the message to a very broad audience. And what are some of the common mistakes that you see people make with If It Fits Your Macros? Um, okay, so I think the biggest aspect of flexible dieting is in the name. It's got to be flexible. You know, I think a lot of people get into uh, the habit of being far too strict with their approach. The thing is there's always going to be room down the track to be more strict. But if you begin dieting, even if you are you know, flexible in nature um, and you don't allow yourself any leeway and you don't allow yourself anything but being 100% on, the on your game, you're going to leave yourself with very little room to move. Yeah. Uh, flexibility, I think, really is the, the lost art of flexible dieting. Um, you know, a lot of people set set out to hit these, you know, either impossible targets or give themselves next to no room to move as far as how close they need to be to hit their targets. Um, you know, maybe they won't even allow themselves the opportunity to eat out uh, and estimate what they're eating. Yeah, right. Yeah. Drop everything to the nth degree. Mm. Whilst, sure, maybe if you're two or three weeks out from a show and you want to make sure that you're dialing it in and you're looking as crisp as possible, that might be necessary. Um, but if you're doing that every day of the week, uh, I mean, chances are that's going to become you know, every, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, that's every bit as unsustainable as, as the concept of simply eating clean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. They're both just systems to create a calorie deficit at the end of the day. Exactly. I mean, you've got to be able to, I mean, obviously quantifying the way you eat is the way to, to really ensure change is happening. But at the same time, if, uh, you know, if your approach becomes unenjoyable or unsustainable, then it's, it's going to be hard to stick to in the long term. So I would always suggest that people start off by dieting as flexibly as possible. And if that means coming to within, you know, even 10 to 20 grams of your target macros, eating out several times a week, estimating the food you're eating multiple times, um, then I would st still suggest do that until it be uh, until it stops working for you because you can always tighten up, yep. avoid to reduce your intake. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you are super tight and super strict in your approach, and then you don't see any change, well, I mean, you've you run out of places to go other than more cardio, less food. Yeah. That's for sure. And you've worked with a lot of people um, as as a coach, mm -hmm. and one of the things that um you'll obviously be aware of is that flexible dieting is a learning curve. It's yeah. not something that you can just go, oh, cool, here's my meal plan, follow this, one, two, three. There's a lot yeah. of different components to it that you have to learn. You have to learn what protein is, then you have to learn what foods contain protein, how to weigh, measure, then track your foods accurately. There's so much to it. Do you find that a lot of people struggle to do it properly? Uh... In a word, no, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think there are some people that can be somewhat resistant to begin with. 
Yeah. Uh, and I've certainly worked with a number of clients that when they receive their nutrition recommendations from me, they're like, uh, where's the food plan? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and like, that's cool. But at the end of the day, the idea is to teach people how to eat. Yeah. It's not, it's not to teach them how to blindly follow. Yeah. Nah, you know, um, I typically find the learning curve is steep, particularly when a client actually immerses themselves in it. If, they, if they're going to arm and R about it, yeah, it might take a little bit longer. And, you know, to be honest, I, I still do have a few clients that have struggled to adapt, but I think the reason that, that happens is because they don't, you know, take the half an hour, which realistically is all it takes, the half an hour at the start of the week to log one day and realize, like, Hey, this is actually pretty simple. It's yeah, just a yeah. math puzzle, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like to provide clients with as much information as possible, but at the end of the day, I want them to make their own decisions. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, now that most people that do come to me come to me for a reason, i.e., they know I work with flexible dieting. Yeah, and that's what yeah, I'm yeah. Um, but I guess the, at the, the start, did I, you experience more of that um, struggle in teaching people? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. But, Ultimately, the long-term benefit of, of putting in the time up front to teach somebody how to do it is that they can, you know, fend for themselves. You know, you can you can go fishing for somebody and, and allow them to eat for a day, or you can teach them how to fish themselves and they'll eat for a lifetime. Um, it's probably not the best way of putting that proverb, but you know what I mean. You know? So I think uh, once people get their head around it. It's certainly something you got to get your head around. It's not just, this is a protein, this is a carb, this is a fat. Um, once you know how it works, it becomes a lot easier to actually manipulate, yeah. if you like. Yeah. Um, and you went from 86 kilos, Nick, flat, skinny, not skinny, but flat, at your AMV comp, um, from memory, to a yeah. 96 kilos full and looking pretty jacked. What did you weigh at the bodybuilding.com show? Uh, I guess around that. Around I, to that. be honest, I'm not great at uh, tracking my own progress. Um, <laughs> because, yeah to, be, yeah, to be honest, I, knew, I, knew, I mean, I knew I was eating at a deficit in the lead up to bodybuilding.com, yeah. the final. Um, but because it wasn't like really a show, yeah. like a bodybuilding show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't that like real need to be like make sure you're sticky lean type thing? So yeah, um, I was in a deficit. I was definitely getting leaner. I knew that I was looking leaner and leaner as time went by. I, I didn't actually weigh myself uh, in the yeah. six weeks leading up to that. I'm sorry. It was about ninety six kilos about yeah. four weeks. I think. And I guess you know. that's one of the things you become more intuitive the longer that you do it. That you don't need the numbers as much as somebody who hasn't been doing it for so long. Yeah, I mean because it was such a short prep, uh, essentially. I knew that if I was going to be eating a certain amount, I would lose weight. It would it'd be very unlikely that I would have to, uh, you know, push through any plateau of any sort. Um, I mean, obviously, I was I was strict with the numbers I was hitting. Um, I just wasn't uh, overly concerned about regularly checking in yeah, and yeah, yeah. accountable from that perspective, which is bad. If you're one of my clients listening, don't do that. <laughs> so, or if you're a JPS client, don't do that either. Yeah, it's not the way to do it. If you want to be uh, as accountable and strict as yeah. possible, then you should weigh in regularly. Yeah. Uh, because ultimately, objective feedback is the best sort of, of feedback. It's going to give you the indication as to whether or not you're on the right track. Yeah. Uh, if not, it's going to give you the you know appropriate information that you need to make calculated decisions moving forward. Yeah. That, that's absolutely spot on. And my question to Nick was, you've obviously gained a significant amount of muscle over the course of your training career. 10 kilos is quite a bit. Obviously, it might not all be muscle. There's obviously going to be some water and glycogen and all the rest of it, but it's still quite a large number. Was that through lean bulking or dirty bulking, like small deficits and large deficits? What's your approach to gaining muscle? Uh, okay, so the first time I ever tried to... Uh uh, actively getting, you know, actively get bigger uh, was probably the dirtier approach. Um, to be honest, the first time I ever tried to build muscle, I got to the point where I was like, you know, I've been lean forever, lean forever. I mean, now I look back on it, I, I feel like I probably look like a 12-year-old kid as far as my muscle, muscular development is concerned. But at the time, my entire training career had revolved around just getting lean. So I've never really spent any time training uh, and eating appropriately for, for building muscle. So I decided that um, I was going to put aside 
um, the disappointment of gaining weight, and I just thought, look, I'm going to I'm going to build muscle. And at the time, my diet had been somewhat restrictive until that point. Um, even incorporating more flexible approaches as far as tracking my calories and macros, yeah, yeah, yeah. still wasn't eating a great deal. So initially, I just said, you know what, just give yourself the opportunity to eat what you want within reason. Um, if you're hungry, eat. Um, if there's something extra you want to have, eat that. Uh, and I guess that lasted for a couple of weeks before I started to, my hunger levels obviously started to regulate my intake a little bit more. Yep, yep, yep. But I guess that first period of time was probably 12 to 18 months. I didn't really track my intake. It got to the point where I was largely eating what I wanted, uh, when I wanted, and I wasn't really gaining weight too much. Um, but for me, it was all about, I guess, getting through as much training volume as possible as well. I was probably eating, in hindsight, around 4,000 calories a day, and that was enough to make sure I continued gaining weight. I think I got up to around 102 at one point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to be honest, ever since that point then, I think I got up to 102.5, and then I decided to compete again for the third time, and that was at a WBFF show. Yeah. Uh, under Lane as my coach. Yeah, right. This is the time I prepped using flexible dieting. I think I got down to around 91.5 on stage. Um, and then ever since then, it has been a far leaner approach to building muscle. I've found that every time I've increased my intake and then cut again, I've managed to improve my body composition. So whilst I may not have built as much muscle as I possibly could have since that 2014 show, uh, I feel like every single time I run a cut or a mini cut, I'm getting better and better as far as my body composition is concerned. I think uh, that point at which you begin to reverse out of a cut is where you can make some serious body composition improvements simply yeah. by ensuring you remain on track and you yeah. don't yeah. lose control too badly. Obviously, when you've just come out of a deficit, your body is far more volatile in terms of eating extra food and gaining weight. Um, any increase in calories when you haven't been eating much is obviously going to be a far larger percentage increase than if you're already eating a lot of calories. So I've found that um, you know coming out of a deficit in a controlled fashion has, has been really pivotal in terms of maintaining conditioning and improving body composition. I'm not saying that I'm, not, I'm building muscle without gaining body fat, but it's certainly helping me minimizing that. Yeah. So do you attribute that quote-unquote dirty bulk or large surplus to building the most amount of muscle and helping you reach your you know, potential, so to speak, and then using cuts and reversing out to help maintain as much of that at a lower body fat percentage? Uh, I think, to be honest, the, um, the thing that I attribute the, the majority of the muscle I've built to is the time, the period of time I spent eating in a surplus. Yeah, for sure. Um, 18 months, was it? Yeah, so ultimately, initially it was probably a larger surplus than towards the end because I wasn't actively um, tracking towards the end simply because I found um, I started to hate it, to be honest. Like tracking for you know, in excess of 4,000 calories a day becomes somewhat <laughs> challenging, uh, let alone tedious. So um, plus, obviously, at the time, I was just focused on building as much muscle mass as possible. I wanted to eat to grow, essentially, so I wasn't too concerned with gaining a little bit extra weight. Um, absolutely, though, as far as improving body composition is concerned, uh, I would definitely recommend the slower, more calculated approach. Yeah. And obviously now, uh, my goals aren't necessarily focused around building as much muscle mass as possible simply because um, I have a lot of people watching me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot of uh, obligations outside of, you know, being a coach and a personal trainer yeah. uh, for me to think about. So for me, it, it works better to ensure that I'm sort of staying, I guess, a little bit leaner than uh, I could be. Yeah. Um, but with that said, my appetite is also not what it used to be. Yeah. <laughs> and your training... Um, you know, the, the model of periodization that you're a fan of and have seen some success with is daily undulating periodization. Can you talk to the listeners a little bit about what that entails? Yeah. So daily undulating periodization is basically a frequency protocol uh, as far as training is concerned that looks to incorporate varying degrees of intensity, varying loads, 
um, and even varying frequencies at time, all in an attempt to increase training volume over time in the most optimal and efficient manner possible, whilst also essentially avoiding any risk of overtraining. So I think if you think of training volume and um, progressive overload, obviously increasing total training volume over time as the primary um, driving force behind building and retaining muscle mass, whether you're in a surplus or a deficit, um, daily undulating periodization allows you to ensure that that continues to happen whilst also managing recovery. So essentially, uh, I guess in layman's terms, we're looking at um, heavier days, lighter days, uh, and everything in between if you so choose, um, all in an attempt to make sure that you aren't too sore but can also continuously lift more and more weight over time. Yeah, yeah. And for people wanting to start incorporating it, what's the best way to start following a daily undulating periodization approach? What's your advice? Um, outside of buying my book. Outside of buying his book. I'll put the link in the description, guys. That's good. Uh, no, so I think, uh, I think getting frequency into your program is the best place to start. Um, regardless of what your goals are, whether they be strength-based or hypertrophy-based, um, if you can get more frequent training sessions into your plan, that will be the best way to go about achieving either of those goals, strength or hypertrophy. Now, I'm not saying that you have to go from training three days a week to training six days a week, but if you can look at the way you structure those three days and make sure that rather than hitting each muscle group or main lift once a week, if you can hit them twice or even three times a week, you're going to give yourself a far better opportunity of building more muscle or retaining more muscle or building more strength um, than if you were just training muscle groups or big lifts once a week. Um, there's you know, a lot of science out there that suggests that not only can we take advantage of the natural muscle building cycle as far as muscle protein synthesis is concerned and the frequency with which we can uh, essentially get that to spike, but ultimately if you can uh, essentially manipulate training volume uh, and share that amongst multiple sessions throughout the week so that even if you are hitting the same amount as you would if you were training muscle with the big lifts once a week, yeah. um, you'll ultimately be able to recover better, more quickly, uh, and essentially get through more volume consistently over time than the alternative. And I think the best way of thinking about this is is thinking about how much volume can you get through, not just in a single session, because I, I know that a lot, myself included, when I first started, a lot of people chase that pump. They think, how can I destroy myself as badly as possible today? How can I get the biggest pump in my chest yeah, possible today? Chest Mondays. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so rather than taking that mentality, think about how can I get as much blood and as much volume into my chest as possible in a week, a month, a year, ten years. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the whole training thing begins to make a little bit more sense. Um, certainly, the, the frequency-based approach, because you know, I get a lot of people that come to me that maybe follow the typical bro split, and I put them straight onto a we're hitting everything twice to to three times a week split, and they're yeah. going. You know, Nick, I'm walking out of, the, out of the gym and I don't really feel like I've worked very hard and, you know, I'm not waking up sore the next day and it's like, well, that's kind of the idea, dude. Yeah. You want to wake up the next day not being sore and, and maybe we can train the same muscle group again. Yeah. And you look at more volume. You can actually train your chest three times as much as what you did before. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately if you're not sore and you're getting through more volume, I mean, there's, well, yeah. there's no losing there. Yeah, for sure. And... On that, so you mentioned that people chase the pump and soreness. Do you use uh, muscle soreness as a proxy for progress, or should people just focus on their training volume? Definitely uh, focus on training volume. Uh, obviously, muscle soreness can impact that at times, particularly if you are new to a frequency-based training protocol um, or, or any new style of training. Chances are you're probably going to be a little bit sore when you first begin. Uh, if you are sore, I'd always suggest you, you know, ease into any session if you are having to train a, a muscle group that is already sore again. Um, but ultimately, you want to look at training volume rather than whether or not you're sore um, to determine whether or not your, your session was successful. Yeah, yes. Spot on response. And with programming, obviously, we talk about these variables like frequency and intensity and, you know, Daily undulating periodization. 
as a trainer, you understand the importance of technique for optimizing what actually happens in the gym. How important is technique when following a program? I am a big stickler for technique. Yeah. Um, ultimately, you know, you can talk about training volume all you like, right? Yeah. But the discussion of training volume implies that you're actually translating that volume through the target muscle. Yeah. So if you aren't lifting with, you know, what is widely perceived to be the way, the proper way to do things, it's going to be very difficult to actually get that training volume and run it through the target muscle. So, you know, for me, it's everything. I would much rather see, you know, perfect form and loads that are, you know, lighter than most if that's what it takes to make sure that your form is adequate or more than adequate is good um, simply so you can actually translate everything that you're lifting through the target muscle. There's no real, you know, we've all heard those, you know, those cliches like leaving your ego at the door and all that sort of nonsense. But the reason that they have come about is because ultimately lifting a weight that is too heavy for you is going to contribute to form breakdown, which is ultimately going to mean you're going to be throwing less of the weight that you're actually using through the target muscle. So that just makes it harder to track volume if you really yeah. think about it. Yeah. So technique for me, super important. If you're lifting a weight, that means your form is breaking down. Uh, it's too heavy. And you've, and you've obviously developed, like, that's a fantastic response. And you've built a significant amount of muscle using this approach. So it's obviously, you know, we can use you as an example, but it works for all of the individuals who use good technique and, you know, progressively increase training volume. There's correlation with muscle growth. But how frequently do you hit failure? Very rarely. Very rarely. To be honest, uh, to be honest, my training has not been as consistent these last few years or maybe these last 18 months or so as it has been before that simply yeah. because I've had a lot of travel and I've had um, a lot of events on which have required um, sort of varying approaches. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the bodybuilding.com thing was never planned before I entered it, so that was a very um, short shift uh, in my training. Um, you know, 18 months ago, I was never traveling the world to yeah. – go to expos and, and doing that in itself makes regular training very hard to, to get through. So for me, I'm constantly having to run through the same sort of strength programming cycles where I'm hitting similar weights each time and building up. Before that, uh, look, I was, you know, I had the odd session where I walk into the gym and think I'm not sure I'm going to get through this successfully. Um, but I think that is the beautiful thing about um, daily undulating periodization in particular. It does allow you the opportunity to continue progressing even if you feel you aren't getting stronger just yet. Yeah. Um, ultimately, increasing training volume over time is going to contribute to an increase in strength. Um, some people will no doubt experience um, larger, faster increases in strength compared to others. Um, but I guess that, that's where it comes into manipulating the training program accordingly to make sure that if you are hitting a sticking point, you can go about ways of overcoming it, uh, incorporating more uh, you know, specific accessory work or even looking at training volume and increasing that through methods other than simply lifting heavier weights. Yeah. Um, personally, I haven't hit a real strength plateau in a while simply because my training hasn't allowed for it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but in saying that, as I said, there's, uh, there's certainly multiple ways of overcoming those plateaus. Yeah. And you spoke about how you incorporate daily undulating periodization to manage your lifestyle and the travel. How do you auto-regulate your training around you know, the recent injury that you've had while still making progress? Uh, yes, the recent injury has been a pain. Uh, so I work with a coach for my, my training at the moment yeah. simply because I'm trying to, um, as you know, hit a powerlifting meet. Um, and yeah, so to be honest, I've left a lot of it up to him. Yeah. But it has meant that I've, uh, I've not been doing a lot of squatting and deadlifting while it's been recovering. Uh, I've actually just gotten back into squatting and deadlifting. It was my first deadlifting session yesterday in about three months. Um, and if there's anything I've learned coming back from the injury, it's really important that you manage your volume accordingly. Yeah. Um, and uh, the reason I am you know, stressing the importance of this so much is that I didn't do it the first time around and I re-injured myself. So my current hamstring injury, which has lasted the last sort of six to eight weeks, came straight off the back of an adductor injury, yeah. uh, which yeah. I obviously didn't uh, rehab properly enough and I got back into training. Uh, as if the injury had never happened far too quickly. 
You know, uh, we talk about training volume and increasing it over time to build muscle. The very same principle is required when you consider coming back from the injury. If you've torn a muscle, you need to repair that muscle. Um, you need to gradually reintroduce it into uh, you know, into being stressed again. And uh, last time I did that, I just went way too hard, way too soon, ended up tearing obviously a muscle that was very close to the one that I originally tore. And so now it's a, it's a case of making sure I don't do too much too soon and gradually overloading that over time to a point where I can get back to the sort of volume I was hitting before I actually hurt myself at all. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's really important for people to learn and understand. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I'm used to going to the gym and squatting four plus plates aside and the moment I'm, you know, having to hit three plates aside for sets of four to five and feel like, you know, I've got so much left in the tank, but at the same time, it's it's more of a, well, I know I can do more, but at the same time, I'm not sure my leg can handle that just yet. Yeah, yeah. It's belief in the process, right? Yeah, absolutely. And my final question for you, Nick, this episode's been full of information and knowledge bombs. But my final question for you is, you've got your first powerlifting meet coming up, yeah. and I'd like to know, which do you enjoy more, getting a pump or hitting a one rep max? Uh, to be honest, man, I've only ever tested my one at max a couple of times. So I think, uh, I mean, yeah, I still love, I love bodybuilding training. <laughs> yes. But in, but in saying that, there is nothing like the challenge mm. of having a heavy bar on your back. Yeah. You know, I, I love a heavy set of squats and I love feeling like, like I'm about to learn something about myself when I step into the rack. Like yeah. one of two things is going to happen here. I'm either going to figure out that I can push through this or I'm going to get crushed and figure out just what I've got to do in order to overcome that in the future. So yeah. um, I, I, I couldn't pick one or the other if I had to, mate. Yeah. I uh, love the challenge of a heavy set of squats, but at the same time, I love feeling like my skin's about to explode. <laughs> mate, that's the best response I could have uh, hoped for. Nick, thank you very much for everything that you do. You've been an absolute gem in sharing all your knowledge and advice, not only on this episode, but everything you do on social media for free without asking for anything in return. Uh, says a lot about you as a person and you're pretty special, mate. So thank you very much for all that you do and uh, we appreciate it. Mate, not a problem at all. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. Looking forward to seeing you in a few months' time. Yes, in June at 3DMJ. Thanks That's for having me. Thanks for coming on, Nick, and we'll speak to you soon. Too easy, man. Thank Thanks, you very much, man. Matt.